0: morning again and welcome. We are continuing this morning with our ongoing study of Paul's letter to the Romans. picking up where we left off with verse 1 of chapter 5 and working through to verse 11 of the same chapter. In this letter of missionary introduction, Paul has been working really hard to win the confidence of the Roman congregation. And he's done so most likely because he wants to move his base of operations from Antioch in the east to Rome, which is further west so that he's better situated to push the gospel even further west, even as far as Spain. That being the case, and since Paul did not start the church in Rome, that meant he was not known to most of the people there, and so if he wants to get their support in this endeavor, he has to let them know who he is and what he believes. In short, he has to give them a resume, which is how the book of Romans functions in many ways for Paul. Paul. As a resume. And for Paul, the biggest part of that resume was his explanation of his core theological beliefs, which is what we've been dealing with from the beginning of this series. And so, after briefly introducing the gospel in Romans 1 16 to 17, centered upon this concept of the righteousness of God, Paul spent a bit of time in 1 18 to 3 20, making it very clear why all people on the planet need this righteousness that only God can supply. Namely, because all people are unrighteous and deserving of God's wrath. And following that, in 3.21-26, to Paul expands on the meaning of this phrase, the righteousness of God, explaining it more fully, showing how God, by means of that, brings unrighteous sinners into a right relationship with Himself, apart from their works. He then dealt with some anticipated responses to this teaching in three twenty seven to thirty one, and he finally showed in four one to twenty five how even someone as prominent as Abraham himself, who was their forefather in the faith, but even someone as prominent as Abraham was not justified in God's eyes by anything he had done, but through faith in God's promises. Which brings us to the passage before us this morning, Romans five, one to eleven where Paul, having finished expanding on how God justifies unrighteous people, goes on to describe some of the fruits or the benefits of righteousness, talking about both present benefits, that is, things we can experience and know now, as well as future benefits, blessings and realities that we still look forward to uh, for the most part. At any rate, that's where we're heading, that's what we'll be looking at. Before we go any further with any of that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we look again at your word this morning, please help us to be guided in our study so that the things that we see and focus upon are the things that you want us to see. Help us to understand and remember how this this is your word to us and it's you speaking to us here and now. And with that, will you make our hearts such that we are open and receptive to you. Prepared to hear everything you say, whether it's an encouragement or a rebuke or anything in between. We know in advance that whatever it is, it is the right thing. It's coming at the right time and coming in the right way from the hand of a loving Father. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul starts off this section by saying, since we have been justified through faith, and then he follows that with a number of statements that spell out some of the blessings and benefits that follow on from the fact of our justification. The things that delineated here fall into two broad categories, as I've already mentioned, present benefits and future benefits. Let's think about some of the present benefits that accrue to God's people on account of their being justified by faith. The first benefit that gets mentioned is found right there in verse 1. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done, all those who are justified by faith are now at peace with God. Of course, such a statement begs the question, were we at war with God? And the Bible's answer to that is yes, we were. We were. From the very first entrance of sin into the world, in the Garden of Eden, when God's authority and rule were challenged by Eve and then Adam and in every fallen descendant of Adam since then, which we'll think about in more detail when we get to the next passage, but the built-in default mode for every person ever born is to resist the rightful rule and authority of God. That's the default human setting this is the point that paul spent a good time a bit of time establishing in the opening chapters of this letter when he talked about uh, the the way that all humanity without exception but all humanity is without excuse in god's eyes and how we all suppress the truth about god that's clearly displayed in creation and why do we do this because our sinful natural state is to want to replace god to actually take God's place, to live as if God is not there or if He is there, at be- to live as if He's irrelevant, as if we're in charge. And so, apart from Christ, we were and we would have remained fundamentally at war with God, in opposition to Him, aligned over against Him. As verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God, to God by the death of His Son, while we were enemies. We were reconciled. Because of Christ's death on our behalf, because Christ took the penalty for sin that we rightly deserve, then God's perfectly justifiable wrath against us was assuaged. His justice was satisfied, and we're reconciled to God. We're no longer enemies, so we have peace with God. And that's huge, but it's also something that we cannot fully appreciate. At least not yet for lots of reasons, not the least of which is the simple fact that none of us has seen God in His glory in the way that we will one day see Him. And we've not yet seen God in the fullness of His holiness or His wrath, as will be made evident on the day of judgment. In other words, we have no, really, no earthly idea how awesome our God is, both in terms of His beauty and His goodness, as well as His terrible anger. And his judgment. And we, we can't, because of that, we cannot possibly appreciate now what sort of benefit and blessing it is to be at peace with a God like that. We could perhaps appreciate it at a certain level, but not anything like how we will appreciate it one day. But it's a huge blessing. It's the first thing that Paul mentions here. The second blessing or benefit I want to draw your attention to is found in verse 2. We've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now I take it when Paul speaks here about the grace in which we stand, he's not so much thinking about grace as God's unmerited favor as much as he's thinking about as the realm in which we, as God's justified people, live and move and have our being as the saying goes, right? We live under this umbrella of, of God's grace and kindness, and yes, admittedly, his undeserved favor, but his favor nonetheless. One commentator compares our situation to that of a person who has a temporary audience with a king or a queen and for a moment maybe enjoys something of a sovereign's presence for a limited time. And yet, even while enjoying that moment in the sovereign's presence, there might yet be a sudden turn of events or mood or temperament, and before you know it, you're out of favor with the ruler. That, says the commentator, is not our situation. That's not our situation. What Paul is communicating is not something temporary or fleeting, but a context in which we live, an atmosphere in which we breathe. We're not visitors in the court of our king. We are family We're sons and daughters with privileged and continual access to this King. Paul's words about the grace in which we stand are meant to communicate the permanence and the security of our position with God. And that truth holds even and especially in the face of our sin and our struggle. Our standing with God because of Christ is not a fluctuating thing tied to our relative holiness or lack thereof. We're not more justified one day and less justified the next. We are perfectly and completely justified, period. You know, if your rambunctious six-year-old ignores your instructions about not throwing the baseball too close to the house and in the course of that disobedience manages to smash out the living room window, there will be consequences. Things are going to happen. You'll no doubt be quite put out with him or her. There may well be consequences and discipline that happens as a result of what took place. But one thing that doesn't happen in that situation is that your six-year-old ceases to be yours. That doesn't happen. That position doesn't change. That relationship is not severed. There's a permanence there. There's an unshakability there. That's the sort of thing that Paul's talking about when he speaks of this grace in which we stand. It's a huge benefit It's a blessing for God's justified children, and you cannot shake it. The third blessing or benefit that flows from our justification by faith is also found in verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, what's Paul referring to here? For starters, whenever you see the word hope in the Bible, you have to remind yourself that the way the Bible uses this word is not the way that it's typically used in our culture. This is not the kind of hope expressed in a statement such as, Hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, I hope we're able to sell our house, those kind of things. Those kind of statements have all kinds of uncertainties built into them. But the Christian expression for the Christian, our expressions of hope are not based upon the law of averages or various statistics. They're based upon the promises of God and the flawless, unchanging character of the God who backs up those promises. So the fact that it's expressed as a hope is not because there's any uncertainty, but simply because it remains as yet unrealized. It's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. That's what Christian hope is about. It's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. So Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which means, I believe, that we rejoice in the hope of seeing the glory of god displayed seeing that in all its fullness now to be sure as paul's already made it clear in this letter the glory of god at least at some level is always on display in and through his creation fallen though it may be it's the reason why none of us have any excuse before god because it's always on display Even further and much more clearly, we see the glory of God made clear in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That historical reality was and is and forever will be a glorious thing. Something to consider and remember and celebrate. But there's more glory to come. One writer describes it, one day... One day the curtain will be raised and the glory of God will be fully disclosed. First, Jesus Christ himself will appear with great power and glory. Secondly, we'll not only see his glory, but we'll be changed into it. As 1 John 3, 2 describes it. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We will see him as he is. Thirdly, the renewed creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought in the glorious freedom of the children of God. Romans 8.21 And what the writer is pointing out, I think, by this phrase, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But by that, um, Paul is emphasizing as a present benefit of our justification the fact that somewhere on the horizon, somewhere in front of us, is this time that is coming that will be glorious beyond our ability to comprehend. It will be glorious because God will be there. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the fullness of their power. It will be glorious because we amazingly will share personally in that glory. Somehow, in a way we cannot fully understand, we will be like Him. We will in some fashion reflect and mirror that glory unimpeded anymore by our sin and our brokenness. And then, as if that were not enough, the creation itself the creation, the world, this planet—that's been affected by sin and the fall, which has seen decay. The creation will show the glory of God in a way that we have never seen, nor could we comprehend. And just that part, I got to tell you, is uh, is mind-boggling to me, because I've had the privilege of seeing and being in some places on this planet that are beautiful beyond description. I've seen water so blue that it brought me to tears. I didn't know that color existed. I thought it was always airbrushed into the pictures. It's not. I stood on top of a mountain, a blinding snowstorm that was as awesome as it was terrifying. Many of you have had similar opportunities, I know. But here's the thing. The beauty that we've seen here is the limited restricted beauty of a creation that amazingly, as Paul describes it, is in bondage to decay. We're looking at a decayed creation. A creation that is stunningly beautiful as it is. It is still flawed. And it's marred and it's incomplete and it's dulled. You pick a word. But there is a time coming when it will be brilliant and it will be magnificent and it will be glorious in ways that we could not imagine. We do not possess the colors necessary to paint that picture. And that's just one aspect of the glory that is in front of us, just one. Add to that the other things mentioned, the greater glory of God and the fullness of His presence, the lesser reality of our own reflection of that in some limited way, and you have the anticipation of this amazing reality that is somewhere in front of us that will be incredible to behold, and we can't even adequately imagine it, That will no doubt render us speechless. And that is a present benefit. Even if it's still in front of us. Because it's this beautiful thing. That keeps us leaning and moving forward. Trudging through some pretty hard stuff sometimes. Even Jesus the Bible says was pulled forward because of the joy set before him. fourth blessing that flows out of our justification, in addition to the fact that we have peace with God, this permanent standing under the umbrella of grace, and the hope of the coming glory of God, on top of all that, as verse 3 says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now because of the word that Paul chooses here, the suffering that seems to be primarily in view is not so much the sort of you know trials and troubles that we all experience in life, but struggles and hardships that Christians will undergo due to the fact that they are friends of God and therefore opposed to, by those who remain the enemies of God. Listen again to what Paul says. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In other words, one of the present benefits that flows out of our justification is that we are identified with, we are aligned with God, which results in our suffering for His sake. And the reason that is a benefit and blessing is because the kind of suffering, that kind of suffering, is one of the things that God uses to produce Christian maturity in us. Which Paul outlines in several stages. First of all, suffering, says Paul, produces endurance. You can't learn endurance in a vacuum. You don't develop the quality of tenacity and perseverance apart from circumstances that try your very soul. And Stott says, you cannot learn perseverance without hardship and struggle because without those factors of hardship and struggle, there's nothing to persevere through, is there? So suffering produces perseverance. And what does perseverance produce? Character, right? Sustained seasons of persevering endurance will shape you into a particular kind of person. will generate a certain character. Then out of that forming character will spring a growing and deepening hope That is the encouragement that comes from seeing the way of God with us. Learning to persevere and witnessing this formation of character. Seeing God change us. And seeing that happen in ourselves becomes a source of confidence for us. It spurs on our hope. The evidence of God working in your life today helps you to be confident about his work in the future. That's where our hopes are. And hopes like that do not disappoint us or put us to shame because they're based on the sure reality of God's love for us, the conviction of which is the special and particular ministry of the Holy Spirit to all believers, and by which the Spirit causes us to know that we are loved by God. This is similar, in fact, related to something that Paul is going to talk about later on this letter, chapter 8, when he speaks of how the Spirit testifies with our spirits to tell us that we are children of God. So a fourth benefit flows from our justification is that we rejoice in the sufferings And we do so precisely because we know how God uses those sufferings to mature us and produce good things in our hearts and shape our characters and ultimately through that give us an enduring hope that does not flag or waver or fail but is bolstered by the knowledge of God's great love for us. Well, following all that, after presenting his readers with some of the present benefits that flow from our having been justified by faith, Paul shifts gears He points us toward at least two future benefits and a final one that has, I think, both present and future dimensions. The first future benefit is seen there in verses 6 to 9 when Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more... Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? In these verses we see an example of the tension that we find at other points of the New Testament. We come across things that are both, have kind of an already and a not yet aspect to them. The already and not your reality in view here is the fact of our salvation. What I mean is simply this. In a very real sense, if you were asked the question, have you been saved? The biblical answer to that question for the believer is both yes and no. The yes answer comes from the truth that we have been saved from the guilt of our sins by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. We have been saved from the judgment of God that would have been poured out upon us because of our sin. Absolutely. That's rock solid. That is over and done. But the no answer comes to that question comes from the fact that while we have been saved from the guilt of our sins, we have not yet been saved or delivered from the reality of indwelling sin. The fact that everybody in this room walked in this morning with dozens, maybe hundreds of things to confess just from this past week That fact is proof enough that the salvation that is secure, absolutely secure, which is going to be brought to completion, absolutely, but it is not yet finalized. Nobody in this room has yet been saved or delivered from the reality of their ongoing sin. Additionally, nobody in this room has yet received their new bodies. Their new resurrection bodies that will suit us for life in eternity with God. That will be ours on the other side of the grave at the return of Christ. Instead, we are still living in these bodies. Bodies that age and break and acquire diseases and provide us with all kinds of grief and pain. Nobody in this room has yet been delivered from that. And yet one more thing that we have not yet been fully delivered from is spoken of by Paul in verse 9 when he talks about how we shall be delivered from the wrath of God which Paul is referring to the fact that there is a day coming in the future. A day of judgment when all will stand before the bar of God's justice. When God's judgment will fall and His wrath will be poured out on those who do not belong to the Lord Jesus. And on that day, which has not come yet, but on that day, we shall be delivered from the wrath of God. Absolutely. It's a blessing we cannot possibly comprehend, though, because His awesomeness, his, his glory and power and holiness and justice is something we have not even begun to experience. Now, in talking about this particular benefit, Paul prefaces his comments with a reminder about what it is that Christ has done. Verses 6 to 8, he talks about this rare situation where one person gives up his life for another and how occasionally a person might choose to do that for someone when they feel that they feel is worthy of it, you know, a good person. But the startling thing about what Christ has done is that He has willingly and gladly gave up His life for people that did not deserve it. He gave up His life for people like you and me. People who are weak. People who are ungodly. People who are sinners. People who are enemies. Enemies of God. And Paul's pointing this out serves at least two purposes. It reminds us, especially at this point in his letter, he reminds us Of the scandalousness of what Christ has done and the absolute injustice of it all, seen from a certain angle. That the Son of God would die for scoundrels. That an innocent man would be put to death in the place of a guilty one. That the punishment that one person rightly deserved would fall upon another. That's scandalous. I don't know about you, but one of the saddest things that I see in the news from time to time are these stories that pop up here and there about a person who, on the basis of DNA testing, was shown to be not guilty, but who had already served like 40 years in prison for a crime they did not commit. I read those kind of stories, and the absolute injustice of it all breaks my heart. I feel so badly and deeply for these people who've lost all these years. They're never going to get back. And I think about Christ, who's been the willing victim of the greatest injustice ever perpetrated against another person. How utterly scandalous is that? How unfair? I mean, if anybody has a right to be angry about things, it's God. If anyone has a reason for rage and righteous indignation, it's God. And so, Paul's words here remind us of that. No one was more justified in his anger than God. His wrath is perfectly right, perfectly just. But this then points us to the second thing that Paul wants us to see. Because while, from one perspective, it's completely unfair and just for an innocent Christ to give up his life for a guilty people, the fact remains that he did it. And he did it willingly. And if God was willing to do that, if the Son of God was willing to do that, if God has already gone that far, has already gone to such great lengths for His people, then we can have confidence. He's going to go all the way. We can be confident that He will complete what He started. And then when that future day of judgment comes, God's not going to change His mind. We will be delivered then, even as we've already been spared now. Christ's death assures us of that. That's one future benefit. The second one, is seen in the next verse, verse 10. For while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Shall be saved by his life. In pointing out this second future benefit, Paul uses the same kind of logic, which is to say, essentially, if God has already done the harder thing, which is to reconcile people who are His enemies to Himself by the death of His Son. If God's already done the harder thing, then now that we are reconciled to Him and no longer enemies, we can be sure He'll go on to save us by His life. The easier thing. And by this phrase, shall be saved by His life, most likely I think Paul's referring to the specific benefit of the resurrection. That is, our resurrection. Jesus' life, his resurrection life that followed his reconciling death. But that life is the sure guarantee and indicator and illustration of the blessing that awaits all of his people. Who will be saved from the grave. Who will be delivered from these bodies which decay and rot and and thankfully and gloriously be refitted And our souls reunited with our very own resurrection bodies. I mean, how encouraging is that? The older I get, the more encouraging it is, I'll tell you. How encouraging is that when we are in pain, when you're in deep chronic pain all the time? When we feel deeply the brokenness of our own bodies or the limitations of our own bodies. We see the struggles of others around us. When we watch loved ones whose health is failing, we watch them fighting a losing battle. How encouraging is it to know that this isn't it. It's not one and done. That Christ will have the last word. That every single one for whom Christ has died will be saved and delivered by His life. Which leads us to the last benefit I want to highlight this morning, and that one only briefly. But even though it's the last benefit, by no means is it the least of them, and arguably is the greatest benefit of all. It's the one that has a present dimension that will one day be left in the dust by the greatness of its future appreciation. Right there in verse 11, it's simply this We rejoice in God. What's the benefit? God. God is the benefit of our justification. Not His blessings, as great as they are. Not His promises, as wondrous as they've been. Just God. We rejoice in God. Because of our justification, we get God. We're reconciled to God. We're no longer His enemies. We're His friends. We're His family. We are His and He is ours. And I said, as I said, this is a benefit and blessing that we do not fully appreciate. This kind of blessing. Indeed, it's one that I would go so far as to say we barely appreciate. You know, I rejoice in some pretty small things. I don't know about you, but I rejoice in small things all the time. I rejoice when I get a parking spot that's right at the front of Barnes & Noble instead of in the back corner of the parking garage under Fresh Market. I rejoice when I get a tax notice that tells me I underpaid my taxes, but I only owe the federal government $28. I rejoice that the sequencing of the traffic lights is such that I hit like five or six green lights in a row. I'm so excited I want to call like 12 people and tell them about it. I mean, it's pathetic, isn't it? I can rejoice in very small things and correspondingly I can be upset and angered over equally small things ridiculous things petty things things I'm too embarrassed to even mention will be a lot like the things that you would mention but see Paul isn't rejoicing in small things here this is not the day of small things Paul's talking about big things indeed he's talking about the biggest thing of all We rejoice in God. It's a benefit of our justification that we certainly can and do appreciate now. But I think in a very limited way. And I suspect if you're anything like me, that would be true for you too. And as you continue your life in God, as all along the way God shows you more and more of yourself, which is horrible, And more and more for himself, which is amazing. You're rejoicing in God will grow in time. But however much we appreciate that now, there is a day coming. And that day we've already talked about. This hope of the glory of God. The day when we see God and Jesus in all their glory and their power and majesty. And when his work in us is done. And the creation is finally restored. There's a day when all all of... that when we will be absolutely just blown away by the beauty and wonder of God and all of our rejoicing will be focused in like a laser beam on God Himself. Let me tell you, when that day comes and we finally see Him and we'll be rendered speechless and fall to our knees in amazement, we will rejoice in God as we have never rejoiced in Him in this life. And we'll say to ourselves, That's my God? That's Him? I get to be His I'm I'm His friend. I'm in His family. He loves me seriously? Me? I get to be with Him for all eternity? Are you kidding me? I'm his, and he is mine. I really can't tell you what it'll be like. It's going to be something like that. And it's going to be so good, I cannot possibly tell you. Let's pray. Father, it's a long trip. I thank you for putting us on this path. I thank you for being so patient as you watch us rejoicing in small things here, becoming enraged at small things, not even beginning to take notice of the greatest thing of all, that the prize the greatest thing we receive in our justification is you you yourself help us to to see that better and better as much as we're able in this life but would you use the anticipated wonder of that to pull us through the present especially when the wheels get stuck in some pretty deep ruts Keep us leaning forward on that, Father. On these many and very great blessings, but this greatest of all blessing. That we get you. And we really do have no idea, Father, what that will mean. But it's going to have to be amazing. It has to be, just because of what we've already seen of you thank you for that. Help us to persevere. Help us to help each other persevere. And to remember this thing that we forget so easily. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We'll take up an offering now for those that want to support the work of this church or different ministries that this church supports.